I'm Alina Utrada, and you're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Welcome back to The Rights Pod. The Rights Pod is intended to capture the experience and knowledge of the human rights community at Stanford University. Last week, we spoke to Daniel Matas as part of our Notes from Alumni series, where we interview graduates of the human rights minor to learn what life has been like for these alumni after graduation. So this week's episode is going to be a bit different. I'm actually going to be on the other side of the microphone, and your host will be Elisa Zhao. Alicia is a junior and one of our current human rights minors at Stanford. She interviewed me and Christina Schiziano, who were two of the three members of the very first class of human rights minors at Stanford. For both Christina and I, life after Stanford has taken a rather wandering and often surprising path to get us to where we are now. But the two of us agree completely on one thing, the importance of taking a break. You're listening to The Rights Pod. Hi, everyone. My name is Alicia Jal, and I'm very excited to be hosting this week's podcast. I'm a student worker at the Human Rights Center and a current junior at Stanford studying political science. And this week, I am super excited to have with me Alina Utrada and Christina Schicciano. And they are part of Stanford's first cohort of human rights minors. So yeah, how about you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Thanks so much for having us, Alicia. It's nice to be on this side of the microphone, so to speak, this week. Um, so I'm Alina Utrada. As Alicia said, I was in the first c- class of um, human rights minors back in 2017. I was a history major. Um, I left and did a master's in conflict transformation in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And then I came back to the center. And then next year, I'm heading off to Cambridge to start a PhD. Uh, <laughs> hi, my name is Christina Scajano. Um, I was also part of the first cohort of human rights minors and also Alina's freshman year room hall buddy. Um, <laughs> most my important of all. friend at Stanford, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a human rights minor. I also was a summer fellow for the 2016 year uh, at the State Department. Since graduating Stanford, I worked at McKinsey for two and a half years, two in Washington, D.C., and then another six months in Bangkok, and will be attending law school, uh, most likely at Columbia in the fall. That's awesome. It sounds like you guys have done really awesome things since graduation, but I'm really interested in hearing, like, how did you guys initially get involved in the center, and why did you decide to become a human rights minor when no one before you had? (laughs) Um, Well, so we were sophomores when the Center for Human Rights, which used to be the uh, Berkeley War Crime Center, moved over from Berkeley. Um, So I was taking uh, Norman Neymark, who used to be the head of Stanford Global Studies, his class on the history of genocide, and he was involved in bringing the center over. Um, and he knew I was interested in this stuff. So he said, hey, um, the center's moving. You should go check them out. And I think I was like literally the first student in the door back when um, Jesse uh, and Penelope, who are um, now staff at the center, were literally in a, like a tiny little office where um, like right off of the Center for African Studies. And I was like, hi, I want to get involved. Um, and this was before a human rights minor even um, even like had been created. And then the minor was created our senior year. And so I was thrilled. I was the first human rights minor because I like to say, because I was the first to fill out the form, but there was actually a person who filled out the form before me who like no, had never met anyone at the center and then who they randomly dropped off. And then I became the first one on the spreadsheet. Wait, I didn't know that, Alina. (laughs) Yes. The claim's name. (laughs) I was devastated because I filled it out literally like 
10 minutes after Jesse posted it on the website and I came in like, I'm the first one on the spreadsheet and Jesse's like, I have to tell you that you're not, <laughs> but it all worked out. <laughs> That's amazing. I had a relatively less, only moderately less enthusiastic uh, <laughs> entrance into the human rights minor and into the Honda Center or the Center for Human Rights uh, than Alina. I was, I was a sophomore too. I think Alina had pointed me in the direction of uh, David Cohen's transitional justice class because I was clearly very interested in those kinds of topics, but didn't know, I didn't really know that transitional justice or international criminal law was, like existed as a, not necessarily a career path, but just as a field of study generally. Um, and it intersected really nicely with a lot of the things that I was really excited about at school. Um, so I took that class, loved it. And at the time, David was just founding the, the Human Rights Center from Berkeley, now at Stanford. Um, so I was, I was made my interest in the program and interest in any way I could possibly take more classes like it pretty clear to, to Professor Cohen at the time. Um, and then being friends with Alina, there was no way I wouldn't have heard about it any other way. Um, <laughs> So I was pretty heavily involved in the discussions around how to shape the minor as well. I was a summer fellow as soon as we were, as soon as those programs started uh, becoming an opportunity for students, I was really excited about that too. Um, so yeah, it was really, it was one course plus Alina's enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah, seeing that you guys have come back to do a human rights podcast with the center after all these years, I think it clearly shows that the censor had an impact on your time at Stanford. And so could you guys like elaborate on that? And like, how has it kind of influenced your time even beyond Stanford? So for me, what I loved, what I was so relieved about having the, the program there, having the, the center on campus was having really a network, finally, in a community of people who were interested in the same kinds of things that I was interested in. So not just having student peers and finding people like Alina who were interested in the same topics that I was and interested in having this a similar kind of impact on the world, um, but having now professors and practitioners who had actually gone out in the world and lived their lives by those values and actually made those kinds of impacts. Um, so be, having the opportunity to ask them how they went and did the things that they did and what steps they took, because for, you know, a human rights career doesn't require a single set of steps. There are many paths that you can take to, to work in any human rights capacity. Um, so having the ability to, to talk to people and actually see the, the, the steps that they took was, was really reassuring for me and really helpful because it seemed very nebulous when mm -hmm. I was, especially when I was a freshman and, and beginning of my sophomore year, I didn't know if there was a way that I could translate the interest that I had into a career. Yeah, I would echo a really similar thing. I mean, I think for me, it was the community. I remember um, freshman and sophomore year, like I, I knew what I was interested in. Like I knew I liked international relations. Um, Broadly speaking, I knew I was interested in the UN. I knew I was interested, you know, I would have said I was interested in human rights. Um, but I think like sometimes making connections or forming relationships at Stanford can be very, um, especially with like, not just like peer to peer, but like um, with professors or with the staff or, or whomever um, can be very kind of isolated in that like you have a relationship with a professor you took a class with um and that's sort of it uh whereas like the the human rights center um like really intentionally focused on cultivating a community and really you really felt or i really felt seen as like a holistic individual um so like penelope and jesse um you know who who are the stars <laughs> of this podcast i think um like it you know they weren't just uh, I mean, they were really, you know, primarily interested in our intellectual development, but they were also the people that, like, I went to talk to and I, you know, where you could be more honest, where you're like, I am literally so stressed and panicked about my 
uh, my thesis or this class or like what I'm going to do. Um, and, um, you know, they worked really hard to like to, you know, have a community for students where you could meet other students and they bring their students together. And they were the ones who, if you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do over the summer there, like we will work to find you an internship. So you felt really like loved in a sense and taken care of and supported. And that's like something that, you know, Alicia, as you said, existed far beyond graduation. It wasn't just like, okay, like you're a senior now, bye, go out in the world. Like they were, you know, I called Penelope and Jesse several times um, and they've literally given me employment um, during my, my gap year um, between schools. So um, it's that support and that structure and that like academic family is what I would call it. Right. Another example yeah. of that support, I, another time that I experienced the support, the exact kind of support that Alina just talked about uh, was when I was supposed to be getting summer funding for an unpaid internship at the State Department um, my junior summer. And I was, I needed a clearance for it. And my clearance was, I think for anybody who's gone through that process, it's super opaque. It's very slow. You don't know if it's even going to work. And in fact, one other Stanford student who had worked in the same bureau that I was supposed to work in, I, I called them and she was basically like, I never got mine. I never got to end up doing this internship because my clearance just never came through in time for me to start the summer internship. So I was really panicking. And they truly waited with me like day by day, caught up with me, made sure that I was like doing okay and that I was able to like continue to support myself while I was waiting for that to come through. And I was still able truly like on the last week, I was still able to complete the 10 weeks I needed. They were still able to fund me. Um, and I don't think with a bigger program potentially, or with people who are not as meticulous about checking in on their students, like as people, um, as Jesse and Penelope are, I think you, I wouldn't have been able to have that kind of a professional experience that I was able to. So I feel very lucky that um, the, the, the center has such incredible people leading it. Yeah, definitely. And I think being the legacy of you guys, it's pretty amazing to see how much the family has grown from just a few years ago until now and how the staff has continued to be there for us. Yes, yeah, um, I should mention also that we have a new staff member, Steve, um, and we also <laughs> had Meredith, my senior year, and, and yeah, and Steve, I mean, it feels like Steve has always been there <laughs> in a sense. Um, so really, really wonderful um, staff all around. Yeah, so you guys have mentioned that you guys were involved in different human rights projects and experiences during your time at Stanford. Like Christina, you mentioned your time at the State Department and know that you did work on human trafficking. And Alina, I know you've done work on Northern Ireland and genocide. Um, could you guys speak a little bit about those experiences and projects? Um, yeah, so I went abroad twice during my Stanford undergraduate um, career. So the first summer, I was actually funded through um, the Center for Eastern European and Russian Studies, CREES, which is also under SGS. Um, and I went to Bosnia, um, and I also got a grant to go to The Hague. So I, it was part of kind of a pre-research for um, my honors thesis, which I did through CDRL. Um, which is on the impact of the Yugoslav tribunal on Bosnia. And that was just like incredible because um, like I had done previous like academic work with Norman Neymark, who was my supervisor. And it, it made such a huge difference to be able to like actually go um, to the place. I will say, I don't know if this is true for everybody's internship experience, but I think it's particularly when you're going abroad, like it was a lot less, uh, substantive than I expected <laughs> like there wasn't as much like work in the way that you think of like quarter work which is like reading really hard like a lot and like doing a lot of really hard papers and um so it was a different like I and I'm really glad I had that experience because it taught me the skills I needed um to 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 be able to do to to um do work in Northern Ireland which is that like the different type of learning in Stanford which is sort of like one of my friends described it as like a fire hose um, doing doing work um, or and learning when you're actually um, like in a community is you have to be slower and you have to build relationships and you have to like take cues from other people and slow down and really like observe 
what's going on and that can seem really um distressing or like oh, like like you're not doing anything um especially when you come from the stanford quarter system um but it's actually really important um so that's really what i learned from bosnia um and then i went and did a, a human rights center internship um through this the um the center's office in Phnom Penh, where I was uh, trial monitoring the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Um, and that was really wonderful, too, because the center has such, um, uh, such, you know, like a good network and a good community of people that I could really learn from. Uh, whereas in Bosnia, I, you know, I had a few connections, but I was kind of on my own. Um, so that was like also a different type of learning. Um, and then, yeah, and then I went to Northern Ireland for my master's, which was after Stanford. Um, and like, I felt uh, like equipped or prepared or like I felt like you know I, I didn't feel like I was a fish thrown into the huge ocean like I felt like I had kind of like learned like the skills which is like slow down people are valuable like you can you learn so much more from like being kind to people and listening to them and and hearing what they have to say and their expertise than you ever could from you know dismissing people and just like reading your books or doing your quantitative analysis, something, something, you know, like, so, so I really learned to prioritize people and that, that takes a type, different type of um, learning or mindset or, or approach um, than schoolwork does. So I can talk to two different experiences that I had through Stanford and through the, the Human Rights Center. One, as I said before, was the internship at the State Department. Um, which was funded through uh, the Center for Human Rights. I was, it was probably one of the most rewarding professional experiences I have ever had and may ever have. I love the, the specific division I was working for. I don't think it exists anymore. Um, but essentially I was working on topics related to war crimes and uh, human trafficking and uh, women's rights abuses. So I had sort of my pick of topics that I really cared about. Um, and I was working directly with uh, an analyst who'd been there for many, many years, and she was incredibly supportive of me, um, and the center was incredibly supportive of me remotely, um, and I think the biggest lesson that I took away from it when it comes to any, that I can apply to any future human rights work that I do is the need, sometimes, the, really the need sometimes to separate yourself from your work. I think that uh, one of the things that we started talking about, I think when we sort of had the first groups of human rights minors coming back from their summer experiences, a lot of us were, and I think Alina can speak to this too, a little bit burnt out. You know, the, the topics that a lot of us are, are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis are pretty, some of them can be pretty horrific um, and kind of gruesome. And I didn't, until I started that job, really appreciate the needs that I might have day to day and the need to really separate myself from the work at the end of the day and just say, you know what, like at 5 p.m., like I don't think about, I can't think about this stuff anymore for the sake of being able to do a good job tomorrow. I need to really like take a step back and like remember that like this, I'm not taking on the issues that I'm like witnessing secondhand by, you know, reading something day to day. Um, so it really brought home for me the need to be able to take care of yourself in order to do a good job to serve other people later. The second experience I had that I loved at Stanford, and I, I don't know if, again, I don't know if these things still exist or not, um, but we used to at least have uh, a class every year in uh, connection with the State Department called Hacking for Diplomacy. Does that still exist? I don't no. think so. <laughs> so we used to have this thing. We had one called Hacking for Defense and one called Hacking for Diplomacy. And basically it was using like the startup blueprint that Steve Blank created to apply it to different public sector issues. So my team, the team that I ended up working on um, was working with the Office of Trafficking and Persons, the TIP, TIP office at the State Department. Um, and they wanted basically tech expertise to figure out a way to better track and and save survivors victims of human trafficking we could that's a huge nebulous problem but we got to work with them to to tailor the the problem that they wanted us to help solve and start figuring out ways that tech could be used to at least serve a, a portion of those victims we ended up focusing on uh labor trafficking victims specifically in the in the clothing sector um in the fashion industry and that was super exciting work we had 
it was, I mean, it was a fully immense, of course, we had to interview like 10 plus experts every single week and figure out and iterate on the product that we were going to develop. It was a team of people from the design school and the law school and uh, somebody who was a Stanford computer science, like was in the master's program for the computer science department too. So we really had a group of people who came from completely different backgrounds and we were all trying to work together to solve this one problem. Um, and that actually, actually that course ended up having the most applicable, it taught me the most applicable skill sets to my job in consulting actually, um, which was entirely accidental. Um, but it was just a, a really energizing course. We were actually helping real people in the public sector solve every very real problem. Um, and I loved it and still take away, I use the lessons that I took away from that course to this day. Yeah, those are really awesome experiences as well as reflections. Um, Christina, you mentioned compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And I feel like speaking to Stanford students involved in human rights, that is something that comes up that sometimes is unexpected. Um, I guess my question is, how have you guys, like what specific strategies or tools have you guys used to address um, burnout or compassion fatigue when it's come up? And do you have any advice for students that might be going through that? So at the time, it wasn't an intentional strategy, but it was a nice coincidence that I was literally not allowed to bring my work home with me. Like everything stayed in the building. So when I left at five, like I did not have access to the stuff that was making me really upset past 5 p.m. And the rules then that I started to set for myself, because this was, yeah, summer 2016. So some stuff was starting to like happen with the election. And there was just a lot, I was getting a lot of like news fatigue in general outside of my job of like, reading things that were happening all the time. So I, I started to set some boundaries for myself of like, okay, between these hours, I'm not going to read the news. I'm not going to talk to people about stuff that's going on in the world right now. That's, that's stressing me out. And it felt kind of selfish at the time, but I had to just remind myself like nine times, like nine out of 10 times in a given day. Like if you find me, I am reading the news or working on something that's important. And I'm allowed that one out of 10 times to just be like, watching Netflix or just not worrying about it. So I think part of it is just being really forgiving to yourself, but also being strict with yourself about the limits that you start to set and, and ask the people in your life. Like I would ask the people in your life to help enforce those boundaries. So I would make sure I had friends who were living with me in DC at the time. And we would just have like Fridays we were watching like Orange is the New Black. Like we're just going to do that. We're not going to talk about like crazy stuff that's going on with the election we're not going to talk about like weird stuff that's going on with like Iran or whatever like we're just gonna we're just gonna tune out and watch this because we all deserve it um so you need to like you need to give yourself a break and you need to be as strict about giving yourself a break as you would be as you are about your schoolwork your internship whatever yeah so I have I can Stanford specific advice and then post Stanford advice so freshman winter, I made the mistake of taking the history of genocide, rules of war, um, some other classes. I don't know. I basically had four, like, really just, like, mass atrocity-focused classes. That was really, really hard. So that was, like, the first time I had experienced, like, being like, oh, my God, I can't do my homework. Not because I don't want to do my homework, but I literally just can't keep reading this. Um, and so the lesson I learned after that was I never had a quarter where I was taking like all human rights or like all mass atrocities classes. I always made sure there was at least one class um, that was like English 91, which I highly recommend students take, um, you know, or like I took like a class, like a psychology class where I got to like volunteer at being nursery school, you know, just like something that was just either creative or like history of the stars or whatever, you know, creative or just like not, <laughs> not about mass atrocities. Um, and that, that really, really helped to be able to have an outlet. Um, I also not intentionally, but like I read my news in email briefs every single morning. So there's like one period of time in the day when I consume news. Um, and I just did that cause I was a habit my whole life. But then in 2016, that's when like the news, um, push notifications started happening. And also when I joined Twitter, 
Um, and also when like Facebook predominantly basically became then a news sharing platform and that like I found after 2016, I was like, I can't do this. Um, so I turned off push notifications. I try not to read news and I try not to be on Twitter, although I'm not as good as that as I would like to be. But, but I, but I agree with Christina that like finding one time of the day when you're like consuming news and knowing like the news stays, like it doesn't go away just because you're not reading it immediately. And so like having that one time to kind of like take it in and process it, I found was um, really helpful. Um, and then, yeah, I think that, so that's at a micro level. I think on a macro level, right, it ebbs and flows. So um, there were times like in my undergraduate career where I felt like, okay, this is awful, but like, I'm really motivated to learn about this and I really think it's important to learn about this and then I feel like it can be impactful by learning about this even if you know I have to deal with it in flows in the micro level and then throughout like kind of the trajectory of my life there have basically been years so like after after I finished my master's degree in Northern Ireland so I spent like a year basically in a community that is implementing the peace process and and learning about like what happened in the war there um, or the troubles right which which was hard and I was living it all the time um, and so after I spent like a year and a half in Northern Ireland, I just felt like I was like, I can't do this type of work for a while. So um, I basically took a year and a half, almost two years off. Um, and I didn't, I have not read any genocide books in that period of time. Um, for those of you who know me, that's unusual. Um, but, um, and then I really thought about, um, like, after I finished my master's degree, like, part of why I did my master's degree in conflict transformation was I wanted to experience, like, living in a community that presumably is, is similar to what I would be doing if, if I pursued transitional justice um, as a career and, and thinking, getting a taste for, like, how I wanted to do that, um, whether that be in academia or through being a lawyer or through working at an NGO, you know. Um, yeah, and after that year and a half, I was like, I cannot work in post-conflict countries, right? Like, I was in Northern Ireland. Like, one of my advisors was like, do you want to go to, like, the Central African Republic? I was like, no, I can't do it. Um, and, 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 you know, that's just a personal um, decision for me about how I thought about wanting to, like, live the rest of my life or, like, looking, or at least the next, like, part of my life. Um, and, and that's actually why, so I'm doing a PhD in politics and looking at how tech impacts the nation state and human rights and the international system. Um, and people who, who hear that are surprised because that's a bit of a shift. Um, it, I mean, it, I think of it more as a bend because it does all come together. Um, but it is a bit of, it is a bit of a shift and part of why I thought about doing that. And I, I took some time off to like, think about my ideas as I was like, what is sustainable for me to like, be thinking about and what is like important for me to be thinking about at the same time and fits with my values, but also like, what am I actually going to be able to do? Um, and so that was definitely part of the reason why, like on a macro level, I thought like, okay, I'm going to kind of need to switch um, what I'm focusing on. And that doesn't mean I won't come back to it, but you know, just for the next couple of years, like I, I do need to think about something that's less um, um, sort of, sort of hard to deal with because secondary trauma is real, you know, even if you're not experiencing it, you need to be, you need to be conscious of it and take care of yourself because the phrase is you cannot give from an empty vessel. Even if you care about people that you're studying who are facing situations that are even worse than, you know, anything you could imagine. Um, if you are not, you know, at full capacity or at your own capacity and taking care of yourself, you're not going to be very impactful. Yeah, that's great advice. I think it's really important to find a balance between staying informed, but also knowing when it could be more harmful than beneficial. And I guess you kind of answered my question of like, when you were a senior in college, did you see yourself being where you are at now? Uh, but I'm interested, I mean, I don't know if you have more to add to that, Alina, but I'm also interested and Christina, like your thoughts on that as well. So I, the, the only way that I pictured my third year out of school differently is I, I thought I would have applied. I thought I would be in my first year of law school by now. And that only didn't happen because I happened to be working abroad at the time when on a really, frankly, stressful project when I should have been like on an easy project at home, also kind of working on my applications in the background, and that just didn't happen. 
Um, so the only re way that this differs, well, besides like the pandemic, the only way that like my life right now looks very different than what I had pictured out is that I would have been in law school right now. And instead I took, um, I spent extra time at uh, McKinsey and worked abroad. I had, I knew when I was leaving school that I couldn't do, I knew very quickly, I knew I couldn't go straight through. I was really, I had really struggled at Stanford and I was, I was burnt out probably by my sophomore year and just kind of pushed through to the end, which for anybody listening, like who's a student right now and who might be going through that, that's not necessarily the best tactic. It might be for your particular situation, but like really genuinely reassess if you're at a point, a midpoint in your Stanford career and you're, you're genuinely make, you should really weigh the pros and cons of pushing through or actually giving yourself a break. So I knew I needed a break from school. Um, and I knew that I needed to learn. I wanted to really regain a lot of self-confidence and my ability to do good work and good efficient work. And I don't think a lot of people talk about like McKinsey or consulting as a place to like regain a lot of self-confidence, but I actually did. And I had, I think for what I needed to learn out of school, it was a really important and really, it was an invaluable experience for me. Um, I knew that I wanted to learn how to solve really tough problems, not necessarily the problems that like I want to solve for the rest of my life. Like I don't need to know how to sell more chocolate to people necessarily, but I needed to know how to approach new topics in which I had no background and not look at it terrified. Like I have frozen paralyzed with fear, not knowing how to start because that's what you do on every project in, in consulting. Like maybe if you're doing a specific sector, a specific industry, you won't get that as much, but especially, uh, when you start at McKinsey, you are supposed to be quote unquote a generalist. You should go to a public sector client and then a chocolate client and then a private equity client and then back to public sector. And you should be able to do that with some relative fluency in solving tough problems and not being scared of them. Not necessarily fluency in that particular industry, that particular public sector client's question of the day about how do you digitize, for example. So that was, I did want to gain that particular type of skill set, not at, not in a school environment. Um, and that's exactly what I got. And I think that giving myself this break and having done non-school work for a little while actually is going to make me, it A, made me much more excited to go back to school. I am so hungry to be a student again. And I think I will be a much more effective student. I think just because I know I learned from my work experience, how to work better and how to, and I just learned that I have valuable work to put out. Um, and for some reason at Stanford that just, I was really like pushing through to the end, but like not producing work that I was super proud of. And having been at this job for two years, I can say without a doubt, I produced stuff that I was really proud of. And I'm even more excited to be able to go back and apply the skill sets I have now to topics I care about and to being the best student in international human rights law that I can be. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I guess one follow-up question from that is for students who are interested in pursuing a similar career path um, in terms of consulting, but are also interested in human rights, were you able to find a way to integrate your human rights values while you were in your consulting position? Absolutely. I think that if you're going into this type of work, and this is, this actually applies, it doesn't just apply if you're someone interested in human rights work, even if you go into consulting and you, you're really interested in public sector work that may not be human rights focused necessarily, you have to be, at least at, at a place like McKinsey, you do need to speak up and advocate for yourself a lot that you wanna work for those types of, of projects. I think, especially when you're interested in serving you know, social sector clients, nonprofits, philanthropies, et cetera, those types of projects are just fewer and further between. So you have to get especially good. You have to be even, even better at advocating for yourself at finding the people that you need to get connected with who work for those clients all the time. Um, so the skills that you need to start digging into whatever industry you like, those skills you just have to get extra good at if you are interested in this particular type of work. 
when it comes to applying sort of a human rights perspective or using the the skills and the the critical thinking processes that I I think I got from my education in the human rights minor I think I did that in two ways first I think as as a graduate from the Center for Human Rights at Stanford I think you will naturally have gained an ability to look critically at any recommendation and think to yourself what is that what are the secondary impacts that this might have that we're not thinking about right now other than the intended consequence of you know combining these two data sets are we am i doing something or am i revealing something that might actually disadvantage some people unfairly um so i think you bring a critical eye to things that in the moment in like when you're working in a team room at a place like mckinsey you know you're you're thinking of recommendations all the time you're moving extremely quickly you're talking to clients all the time like you're dealing with all of these things and sometimes wrapped up in the moment it takes someone with a background like that to think through all of our your recommendations with a bird's eye view and say wait hold on like what do we think what are the other things that this might do what are the other consequences that we might not intend to to happen but will happen if we if we implement this the second way that I was really able to bring that perspective, I think, to, to some clients is I got lucky and I got to work because I was interested in serving public sector clients. I got to work with them a lot and sometimes on topics that were pretty human rights specific. So McKinsey's also launching internally. We have something called the Noble Intelligence Venture, which essentially is looking at what are potential uh, social impact applications for uh, AI and machine learning. Um, so I was able to join teams that were working on uh, creating proposals for new clients that we could start working with. So I was able to find those uh, opportunities either to build new client relationships or to suggest human rights related work to existing clients we had. Again, you have to be very proactive about it because like, you're, you're more likely, <laughs> there are gonna be 10 private equity due diligences on digital startups for every one remotely human rights related project. So you really have to, again, proactively seek those things out. So those are things you should keep in mind if you're both interested in human rights and want to pursue that as a career. But I would, I would say it in no way impedes your ability to utilize your human rights education or pursue those topics should that be something you're interested in. Yeah, thank you. That's great advice. Alina, how about you? Like, has, I mean, you said that your path has bended a little bit, um, but I guess, did you always know that you wanted to go into human rights academia or was that something that developed um, during your undergrad or even after? Yeah, I think like for me, the big question that I sort of grappled with um, throughout my undergrad degree and I only kind of recently um, answered is whether I wanted to do law school or go into academia. Um, I was inclined, like I, I remember freshman year, like I was always asking questions, like I was always considering it. And you know, you get the talking to professors, you get the inevitable sort of like, you know, the job market is terrible in academia, right? Um, so, so I didn't feel like committed to it. Like I, I wanted to keep an open mind to like different pathways. Um, and, and because I studied transitional justice and international law and, and even international relations, you know, those fields are often dominated by lawyers. Um, and so that's part of why I did um, the master's program was to be able to like try both out. Um, I did take the LSAT. <laughs> um, it was horrible. <laughs> um, um, I mean, so in all honesty, I think the LSAT wasn't so bad. Um, and I had a lot of friends, like Christina included, who like were pre preparing to take the LSAT and and were practicing for, um, you know, planning to go to law school. And so I could sort of get on board with that. Um, and then it was really like, then talking to my friends who were one L's when I, and like hearing about their classes when I realized like, oh my God, I can't do that. So I knew I could like push myself through like retaking the LSAT, but I knew I couldn't push myself to do the first year of law school. Um, and, and I like, I really love academia. I love 
both like the research mentality and the way that like academia allows you to think. Um, but I also just love having students and I love the like student mentor, like both sides of it, like having mentors in that way and having students um, who I am mentors to. Um, and I think that's, that's a type of relationship that really only exists inside education. And so really savor it. And I, and I just, I love it. Like I, I love having students. Um, I would go to the ends of the earth for them. Um, I maybe buy too much paraphernalia for when they do uh, thesis presentations, <laughs> um, <laughs> take too many photos and put them on my Twitter feed. Um, but um, so, so that's sort of like what, what um, pushed me to, to choose um, a PhD. Um, you know, you can check back when I'm done with my PhD about the job market, but, um, but I think there's always ways to make it work when you have a PhD and, and for students who are considering that and considering academia. I mean, um, well, one, I'm doing my PhD in the UK and PhDs there are three to four years as opposed to the US, which is often five to seven, um, depending again on your field and what you're doing. Um, and that's a lot more manageable, although it's harder to get funding in the UK. Um, and even if you have a PhD and you can't find like a tenure track job, there's always ways to do, um, you know, different types of work at centers or NGOs or even going back into government. Um, I, I, I would say, so I don't think, I ended up kind of where I ended up, but I think the path to where I ended up was not what I predicted senior year. Um, I remember like my senior spring, I was very frustrated. I didn't feel burnt out, although I think I was a little bit. I felt a little more um, frustrated or disillusioned or just like stifled by being in the Stanford environment. I think Stanford is a very totalizing experience. It's not totalitarian, but it is totalizing in that the Stanford campus, in part its geography and the way it exists and the way its ecosystem exists is that like Stanford is your world. And for many like Stanford students, particularly those who go into tech or who stay around in the Bay Area, like you kind of just like live the Stanford world outside Stanford. Um, and I was just really frustrated by the hegemony of that and having been abroad and my dad's an immigrant and, um, you know, knowing that there's a world out there besides like the like technocratic, like technologically optimist almost naive way I think a lot of people at Stanford and like quote unquote in the larger Silicon Valley ecosystem think about the world. This was pre-Cambridge Analytica. Um, I just felt very frustrated. Um, and so I went to, when I went to Northern Ireland, it felt like I can actually breathe um, because there are just like people who had a different perspective. Um, and, and, um, you know, and then I got to travel about the UK too. And there's, there's a lot of different perspectives, but it is a little bit more of an outward looking, I would say like Europe in general um, is, I mean, again, it's complicated politics, but I just felt like I found people who were more outward looking and less kind of dominated by tech. Uh, but then at the end of my master's program, I definitely had burnout, like really. And um, just, <laughs> exhausted even though I was very resentful about having burnout um, I, I did have it um, and so I ended up coming coming home and I was also quasi deported because I have EU citizenship so Brexit was happening and um, it wasn't clear if I was gonna be able to stay on the EU passport so I didn't want to renew my lease so, so I ended up coming home and I just remember like that was definitely not part of my plan like I, I plan to stay in Belfast longer I plan to stay in the UK longer and it was it was really hard um, I felt very, um, um, what's the word, like detached or like sort of, sort of just like really upset by the fact that like my plan had been ruined in a sense by Brexit and Boris Johnson. Um, and then I had to come home. Um, and then I was back at Stanford because my mom, my mom works at Stanford and we live in the area. Um, and, um, but I was also really burnt out. And so I was so lucky because the Center for Human Rights, but also Iranian studies um, gave me, uh, like I was hired as like a part-time worker basically to work on like specific projects. Um, and that was really, really nice. Um, so I spent the past year at home, um, like only doing work part-time, like really thinking about my idea for my PhD. And like, at times I felt very resentful of it because I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? I need to be on the ladder. I need to be working like 100% of the time. Like I've been pushed off my path. Um, um, 
you know, so it kind of took me six months to calm down, which I think is getting over burnout in, in a sense too. Um, because burnout can, can, can feel like that. It's not just feeling exhausted. It's feeling like you, you need to push yourself, even though you feel awful um, and, and feeling like you don't have the right to take a break or to not even take a break, but to slow down. Um, and so, and now, and I'm so happy I did because if I hadn't taken that year or two off, like my PhD idea or my idea for my PhD was not at all similar to what it is I'm working on now. And I never would have been able to like integrate or think about or ruminate on my ideas in the way that I did if I didn't have that time off. And I wasn't able to be at Stanford and live at home and talk to people and just like, you know, sit on the side of a lake and like think, <laughs> um, which is what's is so wonderful about academia. So, so the path to get to where I am was definitely really, really different than what I expected. I'm glad you made the distinction between totalizing and totalitarian. <laughs> that was great. Um, but those are really thoughtful reflections. And I guess my last question for you guys, that kind of brings it all together in terms of your experiences at Stanford and after Stanford is, um, if you could go back and tell your, both your freshmen and senior selves a piece of advice, um, what would it be? Out of two, I, th I don't think it changed. Like, I think I needed the exact same advice to both my freshman and senior yourself, but it is one, ask for help, and two, take a break. Like, cannot, cannot say that, <laughs> cannot say that hard enough. Um, <laughs> ask for help and take a break. What I mean by ask for help is if you don't know, I came into school not really knowing, A, like how you're supposed to interact with professors, how you're supposed to interact with your RAs, like what were the different roles that people were supposed to have who were, who were supposed to, who are supposed to and are there to support you through your academic journey. But I, I think I just, I was way too shy as a freshman. I assumed that I could not ask professors questions. I could not ask them for help or things or just ask them if, like what their lives were like because I was curious about like their career paths and I was interested in them. And I, I absolutely didn't utilize a lot of the, the people, the, a lot of the network that Stanford has given to you almost on a silver platter. Like I really didn't think that I was supposed to bother them. Like I thought that I was a nuisance. Um, and I think just don't underestimate the fact that people at the Human Rights Center is just one example. Like this is for anybody, no matter like what you're studying at school, but if you're studying human rights because you're listening to this podcast and I expect you're at least remotely interested in this stuff, like talk to Jesse and Penelope about like classes you're taking that are hard or applying to internships because you have no idea what you should do for your summer, but you're interested in these topics and don't know what the ecosystem of think tanks and human rights nonprofits is that you could be sending your application into. Like if you're overwhelmed with stuff, People will, people will A, not judge you for it because they're going through the same things you are and, or did at some point. Um, and they desperately want to help people like Alina, people like Jesse, like want to be there to help you figure that stuff out. So if you're a freshman or a senior, like you will probably have some of those questions and you should not hesitate to ask the people who are there around you, not just professors, but staff as well. Like all they want to do is talk you through those kinds of things and there's no point in like suffering in silence because you feel like you're the dumbest person in the room and then I think we talked a little bit about taking a break and I know Alina just talked about this too but I went also went through a very similar experience I quit my job like six months earlier than I thought I would before law school like I did not picture taking such a long break before school started and I didn't realize how much I needed it I had been I was burnt out from like a year. I had like a year's delay of burnout to like work myself through and like be ready to go back to school. And even though it wasn't my plan to have been unemployed for such an extended period of time. And I know that I'm in a really, I was lucky in that I had like saved a lot of money from school. So it wasn't like a super debilitating thing for me in the short term. Um, but like, if you can, if you can take a break and you think you need it, if you think you need a break, you're right. Like it's never, it's never like if you think you need a break, you're like your instincts are wrong. If you feel exhausted, you're exhausted and you should just be kind to yourself and try to find a way to give yourself that space to do it. And it's like, 
And even if you didn't mean to give yourself a break because like you quit in the spur of the moment in a totally hypothetical situation, like you probably needed it and see the breaks that you're, you're given by the universe as a, as a thing, as a, as a really positive thing for you. So that's all I have to say. Yeah. Sometimes you don't choose to take a break. Taking a break chooses you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which I think is both me and Christina's experience. Um, Yeah. So if I could go back to my freshman self, I think what I would say is to be more kind. Um, I think like a lot of freshmen, I came in feeling both like completely inadequate in terms of like my knowledge level, which is not to say that Christina's rolling her eyes at me because I was very aggressive about my podcast listening. No, no, no. I'm I will tell this, I'm saving this story for another podcast I'm making for this, but I will only tell it extremely briefly. Alina comes up to me first week of school, so something like, blah, 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 I'm so glad I have somebody else who I can talk to brought Srebrenica. And I was like, totally. <laughs> what is Srebrenica? <laughs> so, but I think Alina so was very impressive in terms of her base level of knowledge on most things. So she, And I if you couldn't surprised. tell by her future <laughs> PhD, she's a pretty impressive person, so... But I think Anyways. that relates, but I think that relates to the being more kind thing because I felt like it's, I think it, it being a Stanford student, I think is sort of like analogous to like being an American citizen or like the feeling of being an American citizen, which is like, you both feel like incredibly stupid, like just like, so not even stupid, but ignorant, right? Because you know you're smart, right? But you just feel ignorant. Like you're like, okay, I'm capable, but I, I missed out on a ton of stuff that everyone else knows and I need to like read constantly. But then you also feel incredibly superior where you're like, I am brilliant um, and amazing. Um, and I always say that's a kind of similar to the feeling of being an American citizen when you're told simultaneously that like, you are so powerful and you one person can change the world but then you also feel incredibly like not powerful because you're like you're a one person and you are insignificant and nothing will change the american political establishment um and so but i think a lot of like right i think it took me a while to realize that like everyone else was also experiencing this like weird mix of emotions of feeling like completely ignorant and also feeling strangely capable and incredibly privileged at least um and um but I also felt like very alone in a sense like intellectually and and sort of socially because I felt like in high school that I had all these like interests and I was like really intense but then when I got to college I was gonna like meet people exactly like me and I did pe- meet people who were really similar to me. Like that, Christina is proof of that, right? Like, um, but then I got to college, and it turned out like people are similar, but they're also very different from you. Like they they might have similar interests, but they might have like different social um, habits. And people who have similar social habits do might have different intellectual interests, as I discovered when it turned out other people like to party, and I did not. And, <laughs> freshman year I sat when we had like the first non-dry day when everybody like went to some party and I sat in my room annotating my copy of the UN Charter because that's what I thought would be more fun um which is both funny but also I regret so I think the way that that those sort of like feelings of of uh inferiority and superiority reflected like I wish I had just been um like kinder in the sense that I wish like I recognized that everybody was feeling very similar to me and everybody is vulnerable and powerful and that um you know the way that I interact with people now which is that like people always have reasons and people are um right like you should just be kind to people and and people are always experiencing things that you you just don't know um even if they don't share um I just had a follow-up before you go on to your senior advice of you mentioned that you regret annotating the UN Charter. I guess, like, <laughs> what would you have done differently in that situation? Well, I, this is, I guess, okay. I regret and don't regret in, in a sense that I feel like what was really hard my freshman year, but that was not something that I could have combated by having a different mindset or doing different behavior, was that I, 
um, I had the biggest thing I sort of struggled with, I think was like finding people who wanted to socialize the way I did. Cause I don't drink and I don't really go out and party. Um, like I said, at home reading and, and, it, and I think some people, I don't think it's really being introverted, although that could be part of it, but like, cause I am a pretty extroverted person. Um, but it was, it took a while. It took a year or two to like find friends who wanted to hang out the way that I wanted to hang out. Um, well, it took but me it, like three years to chill out <laughs> enough for us. Like if I would have to sum this up, it would be like, trust the process and that the process is many of your, if you're an introvert, many of your friends will chill out in the four years you're at school <laughs> is the first thing. But the second thing is that like, you will, you will, I can almost guarantee you that I will, I can guarantee you, you will find a group of people that you deeply enjoy hanging out with and that you want to stay in touch with. And I can also almost guarantee you that it's not going, you're not going to find those people your first year and you might not even find them your second year. And honestly, you might not even find them your third, but like before you leave, you will find <laughs> at least a few of those people. Like I never need more than like two friends, but like, that's just me. True. But I was no, able, true. and it took me, and it took me a while at Stanford to find those people and it took like and like Aline and I honestly didn't become super close friends until like our last year at Stanford mm -hmm. and by then we like had found a like very close cohort of a few people who were all just like we're great people but we, honest to god we might not have all gotten along our freshman year so I would yeah. say like if you're having a hard time with that stuff like number one every no one loves <laughs> like no one loves the like absolute first friends necessarily that you're gonna find some people do and that's awesome and if you don't that's also totally fine nothing is wrong with you, you but you just have to trust that like you will find those people and it's a big campus so it's gonna take some time to to find them so don't don't feel like if you didn't find them in your first week like you're screwed you're not yeah I I want yeah I agree and I think I think it is true that people change and freshman year I don't know if this was everyone's experience but almost all of my friends just despise freshman year at like a variety of different college institutions. Christina's cheering because she also despised freshman year. Um, and that's not just unique to Stanford. I think every single one of my friends, no matter what college they went to, freshman year is so, so hard. Um, intellectually, socially, emotionally, like you name it. Um, and um, so don't, don't be, it, it can get better and it does get better. Um, but that was the advice that I would give, I think, is that like I dealt with it being very hard by just like, trying very hard to like impress people with like my intelligence, i.e. like telling Christina, talking to Christina about a genocide in Bosnia the first time I met her. Um, um, and that's, yeah, something that like as I felt more confident in myself and like feeling like, okay, like I am not super ignorant, like I feel like um, confident that then I was able to just like let down my shell and be kinder um advice to my senior self um i guess would be to be kinder to myself um i feel like i felt like i had to be like i feel sometimes that like my youth i mean i'm still young but like my teenage years and my young my early 20s was like doing an adult impression and I felt like everybody expected me to be like an adult already like to be 30 and to have it all figured out like not just intellectually but socially and personally and um you know there's things I discovered about myself like when I was 23 you know that um um, you know perhaps I, I would have known had I not been <laughs> reading about genocide when I was 16 um, but you know that you, uh, but I think it's true, right? Like you, you are always growing and you are always learning and you are always, um, becoming, I don't want to say a better person cause I don't think that's, that's true, but you're, you're always becoming a different person and to be kind to yourself and that people, people around you both, I mean, I want to say know your age because when you're a senior, right, like people know you're a senior, but like people understand that you're at a stage in your journey and they are kind to you and they will give you empathy and they will give you compassion and nobody expects you to be fully baked um, and no one expects you to be perfect or totally, you know, brilliant before you they talk to you. Like they know where you are and part of the joy, and I learned this from having students, like part of the joy of having students is to be able to like 
help them along the journey. Um, so, so that would be my advice um, to my freshman self, be kind and to senior self, be kinder to yourself. Those are all great pieces of advice that I will definitely take to heart. And yeah, I agree with Alina that I don't think people necessarily change in college. I think the common thread in what both of you guys have been saying is that it seems like you guys have both grown more into yourselves in college and beyond, which is pretty cool to hear about. You've been listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Thank you so much to Alicia and Christina for this wonderful conversation. And a big thank you again to all of the alumni who were involved in making our Notes from Alumni series happen. And of course, a thank you to the Center for Human Rights and especially to our staff members, Penelope, Jesse, David, and Steve, who made it all possible. Join us next time for another episode of The Rights Pod. You're listening to The Rights Pod.